So we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 14. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father and Lord Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Well, good afternoon and um, welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. And it's my privilege to walk through the second part of Exodus with you. If you were with us last week, we mentioned that um, we really want this to be the most encouraging series that we've done. And we want you to see who God is and what he is like through his word. That the book of Exodus is a story and a reasonably famous one, but it's a story that is meant to tell us things about who God is. And today, the really the, in one sentence, what we're going to learn is that God is God. And I realize that that might sound underwhelming, but if you, if you track with us, I think there is something profound to learn in here. And there is a, there is a truth here that is deeply missing in our culture. I, um, I love and always have since I was in high school, love skateboarding. I don't get out as much uh, as I used to, obviously. With three kids, it's a little bit trickier to get out there for a session. But I keep an eye on things and just what's happening in the scene. And just recently, there's a, there's, a, there's a magazine that, even if you're not into skating, you've probably heard of, called Thrasher. And the, um, the cover for either the most recent issue or the one before uh, was of a guy called Clive Dixon, which is such a great conservative name for a skateboarder, isn't it? Like, it sounds like he... Um, is in retirement. But Clive Dixon is a, is a pretty extraordinary skater. And this was the photo for the cover. And it'll come up on the screen there for you. We've got it over in there. The, um, the title shot, oh, this is in Keynote, that one there. The, um, the cover shot for it was, um, was of him skating on a rail between two water towers. Now, if that didn't seem, I mean, if the, if the photo doesn't kind of give you a sense of the, just the danger of it, 
there's a, there's a video that kind of goes through his whole experience of putting this together. So he drove, someone had heard of this spot, they drove hours to get out there, but when they got there, they weren't even sure once they got on top of the towers that it would actually hold his weight. And, and skateboarders being reasonably technical people, they're not idiots, right? He's going to take that this is safe. So he got a brick and threw it from the top tower to the bottom tower, and it didn't plunge through the surface, so he figured that was probably a green light for go. <laughs> but the, probably the funniest detail in the whole thing was that the night before he actually went to, to film the trick, so it was on a Saturday, I think, and on the Friday night, he actually sat down and rewrote his will. And I thought, that is such a great moment for skateboarding in terms of being so, on the one hand, reckless and needlessly so, but also really diligent and responsible. <laughs> and uh, he didn't tell the filmers or anyone until after he'd landed it that that's what he had done. Because the truth was, if he missed even anything on that, if he had the slightest miscalculation, the fall on that was certain death. There was, there was no possible chance that he was going to survive a drop like that. Now, as you hear that, you might be like, why do people do this? And it's a question worth asking. In fact, the bigger question would be, why are extreme sports even a thing? They weren't around 100 years ago, 200 and there beyond. Extreme sports weren't a thing at all. In fact, extreme sports have only really showed up in probably the last 40 to 50 years at a stretch, at least as like a reasonably common pursuit. And the question would have to be, why? Why are adrenaline sports suddenly emerging? And I would put to you that it's this. I think we want an experience that puts us as close to death as possible whilst feeling very much alive. That we want a kind of a, an out-of-the-ordinary experience. We experience so much stuff, we have so much stuff at our fingertips that we can enjoy, that we've become bored, and we want something out of the ordinary. And I would put to you that as our culture has walked away from God as being the answer to meaning and significance in life, we've tried to fill that void with things like extreme sports, something that would give us some sense of life and death, of feeling very much alive whilst having a brush with death. But the truth is it doesn't last and it doesn't bring the significance that we're hoping for. And the encounter that Moses has with God in these chapters of Exodus is that reality. To meet a God who is not safe and yet is good. To meet a God with whom it feels like very much a brush with death and yet to walk away very much alive. And to know that if you follow Jesus, that you know this very God. And so I'm going to pray that we would encounter God as He really is, as He reveals Himself to be in the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father God, we praise You that You're a good and loving God, that You don't leave us guessing as to who You are, but You have revealed Yourself in Your Word. And we pray that as we look at Your Word in Exodus 3 and 4, we would see You as You really are. You would take away false understandings of who You are, small and weak understandings of who You are, we might see you as God eternal, as Father of all, Creator of all, and the lover of our soul. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, last week we picked up the story where God's people, Israel, were growing exponentially in a foreign land in Egypt. They get to the point where there's such a massive group of people that Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, looks down and considers them a threat. And so he decides that he's going to suppress them as a people. He does worse and worse things and puts them into hard slavery and hard work. And then eventually, he even tries to kill all the firstborn of that nation. And God resists him at every turn and even uses Pharaoh's actions to raise up this guy called Moses who will eventually be his downfall. 
Uh, but Moses, uh, one, at one moment, is, uh, is observing an Egyptian beating one of his fellow countrymen. He can't stand by and do nothing. He intervenes and ends up killing the Egyptian. He buries his body and tries to hide what has happened. And then he flees the country, knowing that Pharaoh will have him killed. And he flees east to a land called Midian. And there he meets a priest. He gets married. He starts a family. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 3. He's over there looking after his father-in-law's flock when something extraordinary happens. Look what happens in Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look. In many ancient cultures, mountains have a, a, a spiritual kind of significance. They're often considered the meeting place between humankind and God, partly because they're the part of the earth that seems to be reaching for the heavens. And so here, he's feeding the flock, and he comes to a mountain, and the mountain is called Horeb, but it will also be the mountain where, where Moses will receive the Ten Commandments later on. So it's introducing this place early in the story that Israel is going to come back to later on. And here, this mountain is called the mountain of God. And while he's there, he sees something that you don't see every day. He sees a, a shrub kind of on fire. That's not that extraordinary. I'm sure that happened all the time. But what is extraordinary is that when he looks at it, he notices that whilst it's burning, the bush is not being consumed. And so he decides, as you would, to take a closer look. And as he gets closer, we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, I want you to just try and push out of your mind the sense of like a, a long-haired, blue-eyed, 80s model kind of image that you have of an angel. Because what's described here is not that at all. Those are conceptions that have been passed down through culture. But here, we are just told that this angel, this messenger of God, that's all that the word means, this messenger of God appeared as a fire. And that's common in the Old Testament. Sometimes they're called seraphim, which literally just means burning ones. That's their one job. It's just to, to burn like fire. But they, they communicate something of the presence of God. And what we're told is that it is terrifying. Anyone who ever encounters God through these messengers, so not even face-to-face, -face, but through an intermediary, every time that happens, the response is fear. Every time it happens in the New Testament, the first thing the messenger has to say is, do not fear, because the obvious response is fear. This is terrifying. And not only that, but Moses here, we're told, is told to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. He's going to speak with God. And this is not a thing to be trifled with. And even after he does this, it says he hides his face because he is so afraid. It seems that the presence of God is so weighty and glorious that anyone who encounters him seems to have some kind of either collapse on the ground or almost a loss of consciousness. It's almost like this. It's almost like the presence is too much for them. I don't know if you're familiar with the term G-lock, but if you're a fighter pilot, which I know a bunch of you are, 
If you're a fighter pilot, you'll be familiar with this term. But G-lock is, is G-force induced loss of consciousness. And the way it happens is you can accelerate so quickly that the force, the, the gravity force acting on your body exceeds. So 5G is what like a normal person can take. Apparently that's about the, the same as on a roller coaster. But if it goes further than that, sort of 5 to 9Gs, what will start to happen is your body can't cope and blood will start to move toward the bottom of your body, meaning that your brain doesn't have enough blood to function. And what tends to happen is the first stage is you get grey out, where you start to see just in, in black and white. Then you get blackout, where you are conscious but you cannot even see. And then you get G-lock, which is a, lo- a loss of consciousness. It goes worse if you go the other way. In negative G, you get what's called red out, where because of the, the pressure on the head, the capillaries in the eyes start to burst and you can't see because of the blood. It is an extraordinary thing and it's not to be messed with. Anyone who, who flies knows that these are serious forces to mess with, and so they are very careful about what kind of pressure they're under. It seems like the presence of God is like that. It is so extraordinary that people seem to almost lose consciousness when they encounter Him, and not even face-to-face, just through intermediaries. When Isaiah in the Old Testament sees God just in a vision, he says, woe is me, I'm undone. When, When John meets Him in the New Testament, he falls down as one dead. When Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples, it says they become sleepy. They almost start to lose consciousness. To encounter the living God is a terrifying thing. And so Moses must be sitting there cowering before this this flame of fire, unsure what's about to happen to him, and wondering, what is it that God wants with me? When God speaks and says this, Exodus 3, 7 to 12, God doesn't leave him guessing. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send, to, uh, send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In almost every single alien movie, you hit the same point in the movie. There'll be some kind of tremorings that something's coming then finally the aliens are revealed it'll be like massive spaceships or some kind of attack or whatever and the first part of the movie is always scientists with like lots of equipment and just numbers buzzing around you know who knows what's even on there right but it seems all really scientific and everyone's trying to work out they're trying to decode signals they're always trying to work out what are they what do they want from us why are they here what are they going to do that's always the first moment there's this kind of fear because you're like there is this incredibly powerful being in our realm now and we don't know what they want well that's the moment here Moses is encountering God and he's thinking what is he going to do when God says I've come to rescue he says I've heard the cries of my people I've heard you under your oppression under the Egyptians I've heard your cries out and I've come to save this people you think for Moses what a relief that would be to, to encounter God like this and then to have him say he has come to rescue and not to destroy, 
Because if God had come to destroy, where would you go? Where would you hide from him? And yet, he has come to save. But Moses has a question. He hears this rescue plan. He hears that God is going to send him to actually bring this entire nation out from under Pharaoh. And he's got a question for him. So he says this in Exodus 13, uh, 3, 13 to 14. Then Moses said to God, Look, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What a profound answer to that question. Moses says, Look, when I go back to the people and I say that God has sent me, what do I say your name is? And God says, my name is, I am who I am. That is, no one gives me a name, no one defines who I am, I am who I am. I am existence itself, I am uncreated, I am the center of reality, I am who I am. Your name is a reminder of things about you. If you're a teacher, like I have a teaching background, when you hear certain names, it will tell you often or give you an impression of someone, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, before you meet them. One of the things that's hardest for teachers is trying to pick a kid's name when you have an enormous blacklist of names that you, like, you, you can't go there. But I remember there, was, there were always there were runs of names that will communicate things to you. In the, in the 90s, I think I've mentioned before, everyone knew a naughty Nathan. For whatever reason, that was like the naughty kid name. But in, when it was kind of like 2000 or 2010... It just switched up to J and K names, Jai, Kai, Jaden, Kaden. That, that was always the kid in the corner. But then from there, it became, for some reason, every lad was named Mitchell or Daniel. And so you just had a whole wave of them. And, and ladettes were always kind of Haley or Nicole. And we just had this whole kind of like spate. And the whole way through, these names kind of had a, had a pattern to them. But whether or not your name communicates that you're a naughty kid or not, I don't know, I'll leave that out to you. The truth is that your name reminds you that you didn't create yourself, that everyone here has a name that, you, that was given to you, and it's a reminder day in and day out that I didn't even decide to exist, that that was actually up to someone else, and they gave me this name. Even if you have an adoptive name, it was given to you by someone else. Our names are a reminder that we have origins. And so when God is asked, what's your name? He says, I am who I am. No one gives me a name. I am the one who names There is none like me. And this becomes the name of God that Israel will know God by. It's a reminder to them every time that God is God, that he is different, that he is other, that he is beyond. And so this name becomes the name that they they are reminded of. In Hebrew, what he says here is, which means I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And the letters of that really form the word Yahweh, if you've heard that before. And Yahweh was kind of short for I am, and it was the name that Israel were to know him by. But the issue for the Hebrew people was that they felt that God was so holy and so other that you couldn't even say that name. You weren't allowed to say that name. What you would say instead was Adonai, which meant Lord. So you can imagine for me, for, with me for a moment that in little ancient Near Eastern public school, little Herschel gets up to read uh, something from Scripture before class, and he gets up to read... The Shema, which for the, the Hebrew people was, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is our God, which was kind of like the national anthem. Everyone would have known it. And he gets up to read it, and as he's reading across the lines, he sees the word Yahweh, and instead of saying Yahweh, he would say Adonai, Lord. 
And everyone would know at that point that it was the name of God, but that he wasn't to say it. And so throughout the Old Testament, the, name, the, the word Lord becomes the word that people use for God. If you pick up your Bible, which you'll bring next week, right? Whenever you see Lord in all caps, the word there is Yahweh, I am. And this name continues throughout the Old Testament. This becomes the unique name of God, the one that sets him apart from all others. And that's why when Jesus is arguing with a bunch of Pharisees about who the true people of God are, he gets up and says something to them that's absolutely extraordinary. Knowing that the Hebrew people were were too afraid to even say the word Yahweh, when he's arguing with them, look what he says in John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is not only unafraid to use the name of God, he applies it to himself. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I pre-exist Abraham, the one that you are claiming is your father. When you are claiming is the, is the true founder of this faith, he says, before that, I am. And in case you think I'm over-reading the text, those who were there got it. They saw that he was claiming to be God, and so they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus' claim, make no mistake, was that he was God. See, God is who he is, and he is like no other. And the teaching about this in the Bible, about who God is, is that God is Trinity. God is three in one. In the New Testament, when Jesus gives the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, he says, go to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the name that they all share, the unique name of God? It's Lord, I am, Yahweh. It comes up in the New Testament. Have a look at this. All three are given the unique name of God. In uh, James 3.9, we see that the Father is Lord. It says, with our mouths we bless our Lord and Father. In Romans 1.7, we see uh, that the Son is Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit is Lord in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if that isn't convincing enough for you to make it explicit, the New Testament talks about all three as God. Uh, On the next slide there, we see in John 6.27, For on him God the Father has set his seal. Titus 2.13, Jesus is God, our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is God. In, In Acts 5, when Ananias lies to the Spirit, Peter says... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. We see that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is hard to wrap your mind around. And in trying to wrap our minds around it, sometimes we've reached for illustrations to kind of give us a bit of a leg up. And so you might have heard things like this. You might have heard, well, well, God is like an egg. So I'm not sure you'd be loving that, but let's roll with it anyway. God is like an egg. There's a shell, there's a yolk, and there's a, a white. Is there a white? Anyway, whatever. You get what I mean. And so, you know, it's kind of three in one. That's what God is like, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what's the problem with that illustration? If you have the yolk of an egg, do you have an egg? No. If you have the shell, do you have an egg? No. If you have the white, do you have an egg? No. But when it comes to God, if you have met Jesus, have you met God? Yes. When he sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, that you might know how to follow him, he doesn't send a third of God, he 
He says, God will dwell in you. Each is fully God. The illustration of an egg doesn't quite come up to scratch. And so for that reason, some have reached for one maybe a bit more sophisticated. Like, well, maybe it's kind of like water. It comes in three states, solid, liquid, and gas. And so that's kind of like the, the same sort of thing, right? That um, God is in the form of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's, that's an analogy we can get our minds around. But what's the problem with that? Water can only be in one of those states at any given time. It just changes. So that would be like, well, when God's in heaven, he's the Father. Then when he comes to earth, he's the Son. And then later on, he's the Holy Spirit. That's not what Scripture reveals. When Jesus walked on earth, he prayed to his Holy Father. And so if he had just changed forms, that would be misleading at best. But the truth is that it doesn't work out. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of those illustrations, and there are many more. Others will say it's like a, a three-leaf clover. At, at that point, you're just like, it's anything with three now, isn't it, right? Like, the, none of these illustrations work because there is no one like God. When God is asked who he is, he says, I am who I am. And to be honest, if he wasn't, would he really be God? Could you really worship something that was that simple to understand? There must be things about God, if he really is God, that stretch our mind that are difficult to understand. Would you really worship something that you could have just made up yourself? See, this, is something, this is an extraordinary teaching of Scripture. And it holds the whole way through that God is God and there is none like Him. That's why out of all the ancient Near Eastern religions, there was only one that were not allowed to make statues to their God because God said, there is none like me. Don't make a statue of me. That is far too short. There is nothing in all creation like me because I am the one who made all things. So when Moses asks him who he is, God answers and says, I am who I am. No one defines me. I define all other things in reality. And even after that, Moses still has some questions. And look what he says after hearing the name of God, that God is the great I am. In Exodus three fifteen to 22, he asks more. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, that is, Yahweh, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Perizzites the Hivites, not the Parasites, the, uh, the Jebusites, and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go unto the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, and strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. And then he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry, and for clothing. And you shall put, on, uh, put them on your sons and daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God says to him, look, Abraham, this is your mission. You're going to go to the most powerful man in the known world at that time. You're going to say, me and my people are out of here. And he says, and not only that, but even though they treat you like slaves, when you leave, they will give you stuff like royalty. 
He says, that's what's going to happen. And understandably, Moses is like, not wanting to question a burning bush at this point, but he's, he's concerned that maybe the people aren't going to listen to him. And so in Exodus 4, he says to God this, in sentence 1, Then Moses answered, he says, It's a great plan, God, but behold, they're not going to believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord didn't appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. And then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put it back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, will listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now what is happening here? <laughs> is God just, is coaching him to be like a street musician, a street, uh, musician, a street um, uh, magician? Where he's kind of got these party tricks that he's going to show to Israel and then they'll believe him. And this is God being very tender to Moses' concern that when he goes back to his people and says, hey, I met God, that they might be a little skeptical about that. That when Moses goes back to a people who've been under 400 years of slavery and says, hey, I'm going to set you guys free. I met God. He told me it's going to happen. That they might have a few doubts. And so God sends him to give these three signs as a forerunner of the signs that he will later perform against Egypt. That what we'll see is 10 miraculous plagues that will fall upon Egypt that correspond to 10 of the gods that they worship to demonstrate that there is one true God, one true I am, who really rules over all. And so he says to Moses, do this to demonstrate that God is with you, that he is the one who will do this great act. But even after all that, so just think, Moses has witnessed a burning bush that didn't consume the actual bush it was on. He's heard God speak to him from out of this thing, that he's shown him three signs, and now he's like, but I just want to push back one last time. And in 4.10 we read this, But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I'll be with your mouth, and I'll teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth... He will teach both you, uh, I will teach you what you are to do. He will speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, as you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, for with it you shall do the signs. So Moses is like, all right, the snake trick, that's, that's pretty handy. The whole the hand is there, and then it's gone thing. I like that as well. But he says, after all of that, I'm, I'm just not a great public speaker. And I, I've... I get the feeling that this gig is going to involve a lot of public speaking in front of some people who could actually kill me, and I'm nervous about that. 
And God finally starts to be impatient with him, but is tender to him one more time, and as a concession says, all right, I'll send your brother with you. He's got all the best words, fine, he can go with you and he'll be your spokesman. And you can be an intermediary between him. And if you're wondering why all of this is included, why is this here for us thousands of years later, why they bothered to write down this very bit, is to explain this, that whilst God is God, and he is like no other, and he is transcendent, he is also tender. That this God who rules the universe actually cares about his people and even the concerns of his servant Moses. And he's tender with him. That's an incredible thing. He says to him, look, you're worried about what you're going to say? I, I made everything. I even made your mouth. I can do whatever. But even to reassure him, he says, I'll send your brother with you. I reckon it's the case that for everyone here, you're probably inclined one way or the other when it comes to God. For some of us, we'll be more inclined to lean towards God is transcendent, He is other, He is all-powerful, unapproachable, lives in, in, in holy, unapproachable light. And for others, we'll tend to think, God is my friend, He's tender, He's kind, all these things. And the Bible reveals that both of these are true. That God is God, that God is other, and yet He is close, and He is near. And so if you're someone who inclines to think mostly of God as just near, as just your friend, and neglect the truth that he is other, you're called to think on these things. The truth is that the Bible is primarily about God. It's about who he is and what he has done. A friend of ours recently was uh, asked to be a part of a, a, a magazine, like kind of a, a set of clippings where mums would write letters to their kids. And, um, and she drew our attention to it as we were kind of looking through the book, that there was a bit of a pattern in some of the letters. That um, even though the letters were kind of meant to be about the kids, they kind of became like, you know, like a Facebook post that's a humble brag, where you're like, it's supposed to be about someone else, but you end up sort of flexing a little. And so a lot of, a, a lot of the, the letters as you read them contained very little details about the kids and a lot about the mum's careers and what they had done and all that sort of thing. And there was a bit of a pattern going through. And it was funny that you're like, that, that seems so kind of weird or inappropriate. The whole point of the book was it to be these kind of letters to, these, to, to their kids. And somehow they made it all about themselves. You know, it can be the same with the Bible. That we can open it up and think, right, what is this going to tell me about me? Not realizing that this book is primarily, first and foremost, about a God who is completely unlike anyone or anything else. That we can treat it like we do with photographs, right? That often when we go to a photo we see photos of an event, we kind of skip through the photos where we're not in them, and we're looking for ourselves. And we do that with Scripture. We're like, ah, this chapter doesn't say much about me. I'll just get to like a few of those, like, those classic one-liners that tell me the things that I want to hear. But if we read the Bible that way, we'll find ourselves frustrated again and again. Because the Bible is primarily about God, about who He is. We're meant to read Scripture to be blown away by a God who is beyond our understanding. And to respond rightly. One of, the, one of the most blessed ways that we can respond is to articulate the greatness of God in song together. And we get a chance to do that every week. Our musos serve us so faithfully week in and week out, giving us the chance to express the greatness of God in song. We're called to reflect on how great and beyond our understanding our God is. But as well as that, we're to remember that God is near. Before I was a Christian, I developed the impression of God. I had a kind of a Christian family. But I developed the impression of God that he was like, 
He was who you called in just the most drastic of emergencies. So there was kind of like ambulance, police, fire, and then army. And if they couldn't take care of it, then you'd go to God. And the only times I ever, I ever prayed before knowing God was when I was in just the most trouble I could be in and thought, I've got no other option here. I'm just going to send up a prayer and see if the big guy does something and see if this request is kind of big enough to actually land on his desk. But if you believe the words of Exodus 3 and 4, you'll know that that's not true. That God is infinite, and yet He is intimately involved in the details of your life, even your most minor concerns. God is transcendent, and yet He is tender. He is above all, and yet He is near. And this is the truth that's revealed to us in the book of Exodus, that we might know Him and worship Him rightly. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are both beyond our understanding and yet have revealed yourself through your word. And Father, we pray that we would know you rightly, that know that you are God, that no one defines you, that we don't get to decide who you are or what you are like, that you are the one who tells us what you are like and we simply respond. We praise you that what you are like is good, that you are great, that you are not to be trifled with, And yet you care about us, that you sent Jesus to die in our place, that we might have a relationship with you. And Father, we pray that we would know this and that our lives would be defined by it, all that you might get the glory. Amen.